Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from Radio New Zealand National. On tonight's show, the mysterious Lapita. The Lapita are the ancestors of modern Polynesians who went on to explore all corners of the Polynesian Triangle from Hawaii to Easter Island and ultimately New Zealand. Some 3,000 years ago, Vanuatu served as a major stepping stone in the Lapita people's epic voyage of discovery, when the ancient seafarers became the first to settle the wider Pacific east of the Solomon chain. Pacific archaeologists met last month in Vanuatu's capital, Port Vila, to discuss the latest findings about the Lapita, from the techniques they used to produce their elaborately decorated pottery, to their burial practices, their health, and their impact on the archipelago's ecology. Veronica joined them during a field trip to Teuma, the oldest cemetery in the Pacific, to find out more about these pioneers of the last major prehistoric wave of migration. This bed is calling people together for a meeting. Okay, people, if you could just come a little bit closer... Okay, so here we are at the famed Tuma site. Uh, essentially, it's just beyond this fence here. Our picture of, of the situation 3,000 years ago is essentially this uh, terrace and peninsula here is sitting out in amongst a very, very uh, large sheltered bay. I mean, you've crossed the big river, you saw the big river at Tuma as you came down. Stuart Bedford is an archaeologist at the Australian National University in Canberra, but he spends most of his time tracking Lapita in Vanuatu. Their canoes, they found this wonderfully sheltered area, uh, water source and potentially gardening area behind and essentially uh, living over here. The cemetery area is primarily here and the, the concentrated midden, contemporary midden, is to that side of it. The discovery is one of those remarkable uh, series of events that uh, often leads to the discovery of great sites. We were, have been running, uh, Matthew and myself, with the Cultural Centre for many, many years, from about 1996, a whole series of workshops, training up the Vanuatu Cultural Centre field workers, who are a network of volunteers throughout the islands, recording custom, etc. In 2003... We had a field worker from Epi Island. Salcon stayed in Vila for a couple of months, just hung around. At the same, almost the same time, they were doing earthworks for the prawn farm down here. And one of the digger drivers here found this almost a third of a Lapita pot, highly decorated pot, and, and took it to his house in Vila. Salcon was drinking kava with his extended family, talking about the, the research that been, he'd been involved in on the other side of the island, talked about Lapita Potter, and the, and the family said, oh, well, you know, Dad's found it looks like a pretty nice bit of pot. The whole Lapita story is an extraordinary uh, chapter of, of human history. I mean, these are the first people that get beyond the main Solomon's chain. People were in New Guinea, island New Guinea, and, and almost certainly the main Solomon's chain 40 or 50,000 years ago. But beyond those big islands, people just don't get further out into the east. It takes another, what, uh, 37,000 years. It's, it's a sort of remarkable barrier uh, for such an incredibly long time. Yet when people do make that crossing, it's, it's almost instantaneous. I mean, in terms of the radiocarbon dating, it's been debated for decades. We've been some new dating of coral uh, tools that we've found in some of these sites are getting a much more precise dating. Within two standard deviations, essentially, people are getting right out to uh, Tonga and Samoa. So when you say it was almost instantaneous, it means they arrived here about 3,000 years ago, and then was the expansion further instantaneous or fast? Even without the dating, when you look at the pottery in the Reef Santa Cruz, for example, I mean, those are the first uninhabited islands that people arrive at. You can see the same sort of pottery uh, in, in the Tama site here, the same sort of pottery in New Caledonia, 
the same sort of pottery at one or two sites in, in Fiji and also uh, a site in Tonga, Nukaleka. The pottery is so similar that it has to be uh, of a similar time period. So that crossing vast areas of the sea, some people are, are clearly staying uh, and others are going on to, to explore other areas. I mean, and going the, back as well. Yes, no, no, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, this Tama site, I think one of the great discoveries here. Uh, you know, obviously the cemetery has really changed our whole ideas of uh, Lapita ritual, and also we have finally we have the colonising people rather than just the pots. But of the three hundred, almost three hundred and fifty pots from the site, we've analysed the fabric of one hundred and twelve of those pots, and ten percent of those pots come from New Caledonia. Clearly it's essential that people retain those connections in colonising situations. You know, you have to marriage partners and for just simply for survival, that, that you do have that high level of connection. And the archaeological evidence demonstrates that. The rituals that we've seen here at Tauma, again, uh, tie into that. They are very, very elaborate uh, funerary rituals that go on uh, potentially for, for several years. People are very aware of who is buried where. Uh, you know, very distinctive pots are being buried with different people. The bones are being manipulated for some time afterwards. Skulls are being taken away from the site, and in, in, in one or two cases we have skulls being brought back to the site. This idea that burial ritual could go on for long periods of time, again facilitating periods when people from much further away could come and join in. My name is uh, Alban Silas. I'm... Uh the field worker for South Ivati, representing uh, people for Eredap. Yeah. So you knew what Lapita pottery yeah, yeah. looked like? First, first I don't know what is Lapita. But then when we discover Lapita Tuma, Tuma site, I, uh, now I come to understand what is Lapita. So you recognise yeah. it? Yeah, I recognise Lapita. Are you the person who then brought it to the cultural centre yeah, to say, look, yeah. we've found something here that yeah, could yeah, be special? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm very proud because... Uh, uh, we found uh, Lapida at my, at my uh, area, uh, South Ivade, like Erreda Village. Uh. So I'm very proud that we have uh, found Lapida at uh, Tuma site. Mimi feel woke up South Ivade, Erreda Village. Lo this afternoon, me welcome you, everyone. We will have established the area of Mibla, especially South Ivade area, Erreda Village. He's welcoming us all. In his role as the field worker for South Ivate and particularly Eratap village where we are. And he's really happy that you've come from all over the world and are here with his community, his family and himself here today. Yeah, he's saying on behalf of the chief of Eratap village... Uh, he's saying this is a historic occasion for the village where all these people have come from all over the world to be with them all today. Wait, wait for it. <laughs> he said uh, he's not going to give a long fellow speech and I think we'll have a short prayer from Silas and then the food is uh, ready. Okay, you pray? Thank you once more. Bless our fellowship together back again. What them all families will come all over the world. And Lord, ask me for a particular discussion. You bless them as you prepare them. And you bless them if you ask me for a particular in Jesus' wonderful name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Mm. Just who were the Lapita? The human settlement of the Pacific and the origins of Polynesian people have been topics of intense debate for decades, and scholars from disciplines as far apart as linguistics and genetics have sought to chart the path of the Lapita expansion. Collectively, they have accumulated evidence that points to an origin in Ireland, Southeast Asia. But with more clarity in some of the detail comes increasing complexity of the total picture. The first wave of colonization in the Pacific region began with people moving out across an area known as Near Oceania, sometime around 40,000 years ago. Sea levels were lower then. New Guinea, Australia and the island of Tasmania were still one landmass, and these first explorers had to navigate smaller gaps of ocean. They spread as far as the Bismarck Archipelago and the Solomon Islands. For more than 30,000 years, the sea gap between the main chain of the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu marked a boundary. But then around 3,000 years ago, a new phase of long-distance voyaging and colonisation began into remote Oceania. 
Matthew Spriggs is also at the Australian National University and with Stuart Bedford, he was part of the excavations at Teoma from the beginning. Teoma is the first kind of really core Lapita site with the cemetery and so it's given us unique insights into who the Lapita people were, who they were in terms of their lifestyle. Um, you know, we can analyse the bones and the teeth to get a diet and things like that. We can compare the essentially the skull shape of of the Lapita people and, and see who they resemble most among living populations today. And they fit very neatly uh, within the Polynesian sort of Asian mode rather than the sort of Australian Aboriginal and um, say New Guinea Melanesian mode. That's really the, I think, a major conclusion. People in the later Lapita, um, and these are the ones who have been measured at Wattam, and there was a sort of suggestion, well, not a suggestion, the statement was made, well, these are not the ancestors of the Polynesians. But I think from the Tayuma evidence, we can say that Tayuma people were the ancestors of the Polynesians. What happens then, and this is something which I kind of have one of those light-goes-on moments, it's only during Lapita that we have evidence of extensive interaction between all the archipelagos. So from you know, New Guinea, the Bismarck archipelago, through the Solomons, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, out to Fiji. Um, so there's extensive exchange networks, contact between these areas. But as soon as Lapita finishes in all of these areas, that wide-scale interaction also finishes. What we used to think was, oh, well, you know, maybe the first Lapita people were very Polynesian-like, and yes, that turns out to be true. And then we were trying to find some break in the sequence after Lapita where some other sort of group of people came in to places like Vanuatu, perhaps more like the... Yeah, relatives in the Solomon Islands and, 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 and Papua New Guinea. And the problem is, is that at the time we, you know, we think that might be happening, there's no evidence of any interaction. The interaction is during Lapita, and that to me means that the population itself changes during Lapita. Uh, more and more people are jumping on the canoes and the Bismarcks and coming out who are essentially by origin uh, the people who have been there for 40,000, 50,000 years. And so... Your initial Lapita people, much more Polynesian, perhaps directly migrants from Asia, the first few generations, they're essentially just outmarried. They're just swamped by large numbers of people who are attracted to the Lapita culture, the Lapita lifestyle, and who then a... form, you know, essentially a continuous migration stream that swamps that Polynesian appearance in places like Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and Fiji. But then, by then, Tonga and Samoa are already essentially kind of cut off from these things. Do you think it was attraction or some other driver? I think that it's Lapita represented an amazing new lifestyle, really. You've got the pots, you've got the rituals that they were obviously involved in. You've got a new prestige language that is very widely understood among many archipelagos. I mean, you could have gone back from the Bismarcks right up to the northern Philippines and people would have understood what you were talking about. Um, it's just like in more recent times, you know, many different Polynesian groups, they're separate languages, but they're pretty close together. So I think that a vast world was opened up back to the West where you had all these major kind of innovations happening, the development of pottery as containers and, and as conveyors of messages about the world and the universe probably. And then out to the East, these people are going out and saying, hang on a minute, there's hundreds and hundreds of islands out there full of strange exotic animals, tortoises with horns that are like two metres long and giant iguanas and crocodiles walking around in the forest, not out at sea. And um, just a whole new world opened up in both directions, really, a whole new uninhabited world that people were finding and saying, wow, it's incredible out there. You know, these things are all out there. Everybody wanted to go. And also a, a connection back to essentially the whole of Asia and beyond to Eurasia, really. Uh, my name is uh, Richard Shing, and I am the archaeologist at the Vanuatu Cultural Center. You've also been involved in the actual excavations at Toma? Um, yes, um, since 2004. I've only missed one year, 2006, uh, but I've been there nearly all the time. Uh, and also other excavations in and around Vanuatu. So can you tell me a little bit about how how you connect to the finds there? I mean, is, do you think of Lapita as an ancestral culture for yourself? 
Uh, I do. If you look way back enough, we all come from the same people. And, and that's what I like to see when I see in Lapita, this, this uni unity in, in the Pacific. Um, and and I would like, I always like to promote that, that because um, a lot of scholars say, you know, Lapita is more synonymous with the Polynesian culture rather than the Melanesian. But to me, the Melanesian and Polynesian names and Micronesian uh, are European constructs that they... Uh, Dumont Duville, I think, uh, made up in, in, in his about 300, 400 years ago. They're just ways of describing people. If you look before the European arrival in the Pacific, there are stories of these great uh, migrations and voyages and people are always coming, going and coming back and forth in the Pacific. And they did not see themselves as, you know, I'm Melanesian or I'm from Tanaya. They saw themselves as, as people in general. And, and that's why you have in Vanuatu, uh, uh, little clusters of, of Polynesian, purely Polynesian sort of cultures, like in Mele and in Pira, um, and on certain parts in the Shepherds, it's it's very synonymous with Polynesian. Even in Fortuna, the language is so so Samoan, and, and and so for me, that is Lapita. That's all of us. You know, it's it's. Uh, uh, I don't see Lapita as a, a dividing force in the in, in the Pacific. I see it more of, of, a, of a uniting force. One of the best things I like about Lapita is. is is the fact that even people who are not of Pacific descent, like like Europeans, for example, are astonished at what these people were doing 3,000 years ago. Uh, and then you make the kind of comparisons, as, you know, um, the Pacific and probably the Americas and what was going on at that time and Europe. Uh, a lot of, like, even the knowledge in, in, in making the pots and the nice designs uh, show in a way that the people... We're quite skilled in, in, in a particular thing, um, as in comparison to other places in the world. It certainly uh, applies to the navigational yeah, skills yeah. that are sailing technology yes. as well. And so that we should be proud of, I, I believe. We are in uh, the storage room of the museum, National Museum of uh, Vanuatu. And uh, here we are looking at the skull collection those skulls are coming from uh, several graves. They have been, for uh, Frédéric uh, Malenton, an archaeologist at the National Centre for Scientific Research in Paris, the bleached bones at Tioma tell a fascinating story of ritual burial practices with headless skeletons and deliberately rearranged bones. In a complex uh, way of uh, funerary practices, and these funerary practices include uh, several stages and one consists in the removal of the skull. And the skull you have in front of you there uh, have been taken on one of the individual, but replaced, reorganized with another person. So their final resting place would have been their own body, but somebody else's yes. skull or head? Yes. Do you know why? No, unfortunately, it's very difficult to say you why. This practice was introduced in the Pacific Island by the Lapita people. They remove the skull, but they do other things. They used to prepare the body in a certain way by cutting hand and the feet and replacing the hand and the feet inside the grave with the body. After the body decomposed, they remove the skull, but also other bones, like the forearm bones. And they used to redepose this bone at the site, but there is less forearm, less skull than individual at the site. So is there one complete skeleton in this site? There is some complete skeleton, but for babies. Adults are always incomplete, and babies are complete. They don't have the same treatment as the adults. So all the adults have been rearranged? Mm, yes, but in not the way. babies. How many people or how many burial sites have you actually discovered in this Toma site? We have uh, found uh, 68 burials. One includes single individuals, but other, if you count... Uh, Redeposited bone, there is more individual. For example, on this table, you have uh, remains uh, coming from uh, burial 30. 
And in this burial survey, we have the remains of three individuals, at least, if you count the skull. If you count the long bone, there is remains of four individuals, adult, and plus a child. Do you know, in this kind of environment here in Vanuatu, how long it would have taken to go from the moment of death and the first burial to the completion of this whole process? Are we talking about people coming back months after the first burial? To yes, this is uh, months, maybe year, but more probably uh, months. To come back and uh, yes, from uncover the, the grave? Yes, the first inhumation to the complete sequence need at least six months. But uh, one thing we can tell is that uh, bodies were taken uh, for some of them at the same time because where the, the bone were removed, the state of decomposition was not the same for all the individuals. So it, it sounds like it would have been a, a timed ceremony, not necessarily by each burial, but as, uh, a, exactly. as an activity. The removal ceremony looks something collective, while the first interment is something private, related to one individual only. But the end of the sequence, or the middle stage of the sequence, is a, a communal or community activity. There's one unusual site where there's a body with three skulls, none of which belongs to the body. Is that the most elaborate version of this preparation of the bodies? Looks like. We have tried to understand why this particular individual was uh, buried with those three skulls and uh, to identify variation between the individuals. We have done um, isotopic analysis to see if this particular person was uh, from the place or a foreigner. It appears that the person is from the place and uh, maybe this is um, a particular person from this place, a chief question mark? I don't know. So the question of why they were doing it remains unanswered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> These were very likely the first people or the first generation of people to arrive here in Vanuatu, so this would have been the founding population or important people in that founding population. Yes, this is probably a, a selection of the founding population of Vanuatu. And uh, regarding the complexity of the treatment, they are maybe part of the top of the hierarchy, maybe. Do you still, when you're working with these remains, do you still feel a sense of reverence? They're 3,000 years old, they're among the first people to have arrived in Vanuatu. Yes, in a sense, but uh, finally at the end, uh, after uh, working on, uh, on their bone, I feel they are my friends. These same bones also tell a story of hard work and people suffering from gout and what we now know as metabolic disease. But as it turns out, the gout may be an evolutionary consequence of protection against malaria. I'm Anna Gosling and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Otago. And um, what I've been looking at over the last few years is how um, the colonisation process of the Pacific has impacted what we're seeing in contemporary Pacific Island health. And um, this is fed into by some archaeological findings from throughout the region where um, there have been increasing discoveries of evidence for gout and other metabolic-type diseases among these prehistoric peoples. Do we know why? My best guess would be that there's some sort of genetic predisposition causing this gout and other metabolic traits because the diets and the foods they had available, I mean, gout and, and things like type 2 diabetes have traditionally been thought of as diseases which are life, you know, based on lifestyle and things you're eating. But a lot of these people in the past wouldn't necessarily have had things that we consider related to these diseases now, things like soft drinks, and they clearly weren't available. So there must be, you know, some sort of genetic predisposition contributing what, to what we're seeing in these um, past peoples. Let me go into the specifics a little bit with this. Can you
can you tell me a bit about what you see in the bones physically? You know, what are the signs of disease? Typically what we see, in, um, for, for gout in particular, are these osteoclastic lesions um, on the joint surface, kind of where your big toe is joining, also in other joints, which are quite different to other sorts of more non-specific kind of skeletal lesions. So you can actually tell that it's gout? Yes, particularly with the placement of the lesion as well. Um, it's the same sort of patterning we see in modern people who have gout. Um, and also emerging have been this, uh, in the last couple of years, Hallie Buckley and her um, ex-student Amy Foster have also been um, detecting um, a, well, skeletal signs of a disease called diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, which has a lot more diffuse kind of extra bone put on in various places, and this is thought to be a result of other metabolic kind of stuff going on, things like possibly type 2 diabetes, or at least that's what we see, this sort of bony change happening in modern people in any case. Now you've taken a more molecular approach to trying to figure this out. You know, why would people at that time have those kinds of diseases that we today think is office lifestyle diseases? So gout is a result of, usually of uh, high serum urate levels. Urate is a chemical which we have in our blood, which is just, it's essential for normal human function. Um, but Pacific Island people throughout the Pacific have been found to have quite high levels of this particular chemical in their blood compared to most other populations worldwide, which is really suggesting, again, that there's some sort of genetic link. And so when you look through what urate actually does, we know that it is involved in um, hypertension, so it helps maintain your blood pressure. It's an antioxidant, and it's also thought to have some protection against, um, I don't know, oxidation and things in your brain, so it's good for brain function. But what I think is really interesting is its role in the innate immune response. Immunity is really important, particularly when you're entering new environments where there are infectious, other new, new infectious diseases which you may not have experienced before. So these innate immune responses are really important in combating infectious diseases. Um, so in the Pacific, and, or, or even our island Southeast Asia, where we think the Austronesian people who kind of spread into the area some, I don't know, 5,000 years ago or so, before they kind of uh, admixed with the local people in New Guinea and then spread out into the wider Pacific as part of this Lapita expansion. This advantage with this, the um, high urate levels, it will, urate levels have been found to increase during a malarial infection and it's specifically as a result of your red blood cells being lysed during the malarial infection process because you've got the malarial parasite which invades your red blood cells and then makes lots and lots of copies of itself and then it bursts and infects your cells and carries on the infection process. During the, the cell rupture stage, you've got an increase of this urate in your blood which um, then stimulates an immune response. So I guess the argument we're trying to make here um, for, for my study is that if you already have slightly higher urate levels in your blood, you need less of your red blood cells to actually undergo lysis, um, so to burst apart, before your immune system kind of kicks in and tries to resolve the infection, which, you know, would give you probably quite an advantage and could account for these high urate levels we're seeing and which have later, and well, particularly these days in, you know, modern diets and things, are causing these really high prevalences of, of gout and other conditions in Polynesians and other Pacific peoples. So it's evolved as a protective measure in areas of that have malaria, and now it's kind of like an evolutionary hangover or something. Yes. I mean, that one interesting thing, I think, is that... Uh, there are other evolutionary hangovers, well, particularly among Polynesians, where we don't have malaria uh, out in you know, Tonga, Samoa, New Zealand, the Cook Islands. That kind of stops at the edge of Vanuatu. But we still have some genetic kind of trademarks of malarial exposure with things like alpha thalassemia, which there's no other reason for these people to be having these um, variants associated with thalassemia if their ancestors at some point didn't have exposure to um, malaria. And because of the the useful nature of of urate, you know, it, it apart from it causing gout, it's not actually necessarily a bad thing for you to have. I mean, there's no reason for them to have lost these high urate levels, because it is, you know, it's probably helping with their blood pressure and their brain function and other things.
My name is Patrick Kirch, and I'm Chancellor's Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. And I've been working on uh, the subject of Lapita and <clears throat> other aspects of Pacific archaeology now for more than 40 years. Hard to believe, but I'm into my fifth decade of Lapita studies. My perhaps naive expectation was that if I come here for a week, I'll have a good idea of who the Lapita peoples were and how they migrated far from it. So if you've got decades of being associated with this, do you feel like you understand Lapita better or less? I think I do understand Lapita much better, but what I understand is something that is also far more complicated. So yes, we have much greater understanding, but the more we know, the more we realize what a complex phenomenon Lapita actually is, uh, both in terms of things like the classic pottery, which ultimately that's what Lapita was defined on, um, but also you know, all the other aspects of, of Lapita, including Lapita as a set of, of biological populations, as a set of uh, speakers of various languages, uh, producers of other kinds of material culture, exploiters of land and sea. There's you know, many dimensions in which we can take this. And so the more that we learn, the more that we're able to ask questions, things that wouldn't even have occurred to us to, to ask. And partly... Lapita pottery is unmistakable, and Patrick Kirch reads the elaborately stamped decorative designs like a book. The intricate comb-tooth patterns are the most distinctive cultural signature left behind everywhere they went. Microscopes, things, and well, you can use the pottery and and the other material culture to trace the movement very clearly, and with the assistance of radiocarbon and other kinds of dating, we put a time frame on that. So that's quite well established now that <clears throat> there's this movement from what we call near Oceania on the Bismarck Archipelago out into remote Oceania, <clears throat> the reef Santa Cruz Islands, Vanuatu, down to New Caledonia, out to Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa, uh, and that that ended that that bursting out into this part of the Pacific that had never been occupied by humans, you know, ended by around 800 and something uh, B.C. in Tonga and Samoa. But the motivation behind this rapid spread, that is really, as we used to say, the $64,000 question. And again, I think there's no one single simple answer. There are probably multiple factors that contributed. Um, but I, I don't think that it was something simplistic like uh, population pressure on homeland islands. There's, there's no evidence for that. People were moving out so fast into big islands. Uh, so it has to be, in my view, more of a kind of pull factors than a push, push factor. And by pull, I mean things like new resources that people saw, new islands that had, for example, rich. We know here in Vanuatu they had these tortoises that were running around and lots of pigeons and birds. And these are great food items, I mean, you know. Um, and, but also there could be social factors. My old professor from my undergraduate days, Ward Goodenough, long ago wrote about the tendency in Austronesian societies where birth order is ranked so that older brothers outrank junior brothers. And when you look at this in terms of land inheritance, the junior line will always successively be more and more junior to the descendants of the senior line. And this could give a certain push if you get an idea that there are new islands out there. If you're a junior son, and you go out and establish your line on a new island, then you are now senior on that island. And I could see this as a process rapidly driving, once people figured out that there are lots of islands out there, these island chains, um, that may be one factor that rapidly fueled um, this, this really quite amazing expansion. The risks would have been high, though. I don't think the risks uh, were as high as we sometimes think. In fact, they were leaving certain quite risky conditions. Near Oceania, and even as far as Vanuatu, has some real you know, challenges, malaria being one of them, and other kinds of um, <clears throat> disease loads, intestinal uh, you know, amoebas, things, dysentery, all this sort of thing. So when they began to get into remote Oceania, particularly beyond Vanuatu, uh, all this was left behind. So they were entering islands where there was much less disease load, much less risk of, of dying. Uh, and I think what we see is big population expansions occurring as a result of that relief from a lot of the disease pressure in uh, the near-oceanic homeland. Now, you know, there would be some risks in voyaging, 
But most of the distances that we're talking about in the expansion to Remoto Oceania are not that far. They're, they're a couple of days voyaging, you know, three days. The big one was to go beyond the end of the Solomons to Fiji. That's, that's 850 kilometers, and that was a fairly big uh, risk to do that. Back to the, the pottery, though, I, I've long argued that one of the reasons that we see this very cohesive Lapita pottery early on is that it was the material reflection of um, exchange or social linkages between uh, new daughter communities and the mother communities they came from. Uh, because it was very important when you were first expanding out into remote Oceania <clears throat> to maintain those links back to your homeland community, in particular for things like marriage partners. There's the risk factor coming in. So if you're a very small founding group, one canoe load, you go out to a new island, establish yourself. If you don't maintain connections back to your mother community, your chances of going extinct are quite high if you're a small group from just <clears throat> random patterns of of birth or to get too many males or too many females. Very small numbers is risky. But if you maintain your lifeline back, you can voyage back every 10 years or so, you know, find your eligible cousin or whatever, marry and so on. But after a hundred or hundred fifty years your new population has already built up to where you don't necessarily need those connections back to the homeland and so I think that the kind of breaking down of this very pervasive Lapita style this early has to do with the settling in process as people have established very viable communities in the new islands they no longer need to take there were risks associated with going back to your homeland and voyaging my name is Ethan Cochran, and I'm a senior lecturer in archaeology at the University of Auckland. We're talking about the colonization of remote Oceania, the archipelagos from Vanuatu to Samoa. We know that that area was a rapid movement of people into that area about 3,000 years ago. After living in near Oceania, just to the west, the Bismarck Archipelago, for the previous 35,000 years. So why did all of a sudden people burst out, so to speak, into remote Oceania? That's, the, I, that's this problem I've been thinking about. And um, thinking about population movements across human history and throughout the globe, there's numerous large-scale population movements in our evolutionary history of the genus Homo, movements out of Africa, movements across Europe, movements uh, back and forth in Asia, in the Americas. Why do populations move? Movement is expensive in evolutionary terms. It entails a cost upon us as populations. And given that fact that it's expensive, that it's occurred throughout human history uh, in unrelated kind of groups of humans, you could say, natural selection is a good hypothesis for the driver of human movement. So given that, I've, I've thought, how can we potentially think about natural selection as, a, as the process that led to the uh, uh, the movement of people in from near Oceania into remote Oceania 3,000 years ago. Uh, and to just develop that argument a little bit more, when groups of related populations, humans or other animals, when they're in kind of ecological competition in an environment, um, competition for resources, which are always limited to some degree, one potential way to deal with that competition is for some portion of the population to move, to, to remove themselves from the area. And that, that can be an, an advantageous strategy in scenarios of competition. And so I started to think about that as a possible reason for the colonization of remote Oceania, the driver, if you will. If that's true, then we have to look in near Oceania. Was there an environment of competition that might have led to it becoming all of a sudden uh, advantageous in an evolutionary sense for some population to move. And I do think there are those aspects of competition in the Bismarck Archipelago, given that people have lived there for 35,000 years. Once people move out into remote Oceania, the archipelagos of Vanuatu and Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, we might expect competition to drop away because that's a, a virgin territory. There are all of a sudden uh, rather limitless resources for everyone. Competition drops away, and therefore the movement no longer becomes a advantageous strategy to deal with competition which now longer exists. And indeed we do see people get to the edges of Tonga and Samoa and movement dies away. People do not continue to go to the east and also um, populations get smaller and stay more uh, locally focused. So that's just my idea and now as the 
the key is now to go out and look for the empirical evidence we'd expect to test that idea, and that's where we're sitting now. Let me start teasing apart some of those aspects. (laughs) I get the point that moving away is expensive, but in this particular case it would have been even more expensive because it wasn't just about walking over the next mountain and setting up in the next valley. This required technology, Mm. sailing technology. Mm. This required some sort of navigational knowledge or bravery. So how much of a pressure do you need to do that? In all aspects of evolution, there's these large processes like natural selection and other aspects, but all parts of human and other uh, animal history are have these historically contingent aspects to them. So yes, you can imagine ecological competition occurring in the archipelagos of near Oceania, but because movement is expensive, we're not just walking across the other hillside. As you said, we are sailing across 800 kilometers of open ocean. Other potential triggers could have been, almost certainly were, advances in maritime technology. People have been sailing in the around New Guinea for the previous 35,000 years, and people have, others have talked about that as a voyaging nursery. So people learned how to sail inter-island over 35,000 years. So you have that development. Uh, and perhaps by about 3,000 years ago, um, colonization of remote Oceania, while expensive, so to speak, became less expensive because people now had the technological capabilities to do it, do it really rather quickly, efficiently, and do it well. Because remote Oceania was colonized so almost instantaneously, we know people could pretty much go wherever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to. These weren't dangerous missions of exploration. These are missions of, let's go out and find an island. We found one. Let's go back. Let's keep doing this. uh, Missions of kind of search, search missions. Other triggers, perhaps, might have been climate-induced. Other archaeologists have spoken about changes in global climate regimes and wind and weather patterns, which would make sailing into remote Oceania easier during some millennia than others. uh, People look at ENSO weather patterns, and there were changes in climate regimes at about the time that people colonized remote Oceania that also might have contributed. So those are kind of the, again, those historically contingent factors that work in with evolution and natural selection. Language provides another way of tracing people's movement across the Pacific. Russell Gray is an evolutionary biologist working on linguistics. One of the things languages do is kind of signify group identity, so the divide of different kind of social groups. The striking diversity of languages across the Pacific. Uh, we can trace back the, the Austronesian language family, which is perhaps one of the largest language families in the world, of uh, up to 1,200 languages, all the way back to Taiwan. Uh, about five, five and a half thousand years ago. So the point of origin is as small as a island? Yes. Moderately big island, Taiwan, but yes. But one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so people talk about out of Taiwan, that, or Jared Diamond talks about Taiwan's gift to the world, which was the, the wonderful Austronesian languages and cultures. So you asked me how we go about tracing it back. There are a number of ways of doing that. Uh, traditionally, linguists have kind of subgrouped the languages uh, and built family trees, genealogies, whakapapas, if you like, based on the languages, um, based on, say, innovations and sound changes. Uh, what uh, Simon Greenhill and I have been doing is uh, building family trees using um, basic vocabulary, words that we use uh, very commonly, because uh, they're quite stable and they're not so commonly borrowed. And then we analyse cognates, homologous words. These are words that have a common or historical origin. And we analyse the patterns of those. Uh, we put them in, into a matrix, the presence or absence of those cognate words, and analyse those using computer programs to build family trees for these languages. And we can calibrate certain branches, and we can use that not just to, to trace the, the, the migration sequence, but also its, its timing and the nature of its spread. So it is like a phylogenetic tree just using words instead of genes? Yes. So what are the kind of words, and how do you come up with the list of words that you think are useful in this context? Right, so the, the list we use uh, was devised by Bob Blast, and it's a variant of uh, a list that people use all around the world. Uh, it, it was just called basic vocabulary, uh, terms for you know, eye, for, you know, for body parts like hand and eye, for numerals, lower numerals, kind of simple verbs, 
And what has been found is that those, uh, those items are, are less frequently borrowed. This was adapted a bit because there tends to be not a lot of words for snow and ice in many parts of the Pacific, so that they got scratched off the list and a, a sort of more Pacific-orientated list was devised by Bob Blast, and that's basically the list we use. So the idea is that if you look at the total lexicon, you know, different aspects of language can have different histories, really. English, for example, has huge amounts of uh, romance borrowings post the Norman Conquest. Up to 60% of the vocabulary that uh, is used in English, which is a Germanic language, actually comes from romance languages. But if you look at basic vocabulary, that figure falls to only about 6%. So if you want to get at the deeper history, the thing to focus on is the, is the basic vocabulary, the words that are used most often. So that's the conserved, best conserved yes. words. Yes. Can you tell me a few that you specifically use in the Pacific context? Because I'm thinking, you know, apart from the language tree, if you use the right words, you could also learn about technology. You know, if you look at sailing words right. or sailing-related so words. We don't typically look at sailing-related words because they might reflect technological innovations and they might be borrowed, like good ideas tend to, to spread. Uh, I sometimes comment that, you know, great technological inventions like the outrigger canoe or intoxicating drinks like kava and things. These things are the kind of things that, that might spread very rapidly, kind of independently almost of the people. So hence the focus on basic vocabulary. And some examples of that would be numerals, tahirua, tarufa. You can find cognates of those reflected all across the, the Austronesian languages from, from Madagascar to Taiwan to Hawaii to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, and of course in Maori. And terms for, for bird and I, mata, and for other kind of prevalent things, terms for, for vomiting, and headlights also turn out to be kind of remarkably stable uh, across the Austronesian range. Can you time this as well when you get that tree? And how, if you can, how does that match with, say, the archaeological record? So the trees have branch lengths and we can calibrate, we can fix in time certain points or have a sort of distribution of ages. And using these computational methods, we can sort of model, because languages don't change perfectly clock-like. They just exactly tick over in an exactly uniform way, but they, they typically don't do wild leaps either. And so you can model the variation in rates. And given some calibrations, you can then use that to estimate the dates of divergence. And I'm constantly amazed and delighted that it lines up remarkably well with archaeology. I mean, the archaeologists have suggested that the, the, these people might have come out of Taiwan about five and a half thousand years ago because that's when they see uh, abrupt changes in the archaeological record and that they get into the Philippines about four thousand years ago and very rapidly across the Pacific uh, to Tonga and Fiji uh, about 3,000 years ago, and then a pause before the settlement of the most remote parts of Polynesia. And that's exactly what we see in, in our language trees. The deep lineages all go back to Taiwan about 5,200 years ago. There's a long pause before the settlement of the, of the Philippines about 4,000 years ago, a rapid expansion pulse out into Polynesia, and another pause before you get expansion pulses in, in Micronesia and uh, the remote parts of Polynesia. So um, they're strikingly congruent, really. And can you tell anything about the interaction? Because in some the earlier parts of that voyage, there would have been people before... Lapida gets traced back about 3,200. So I think the archaeological evidence doesn't have quite the same you know, easy, clear, continuous trail going back to Taiwan, as you can see in, in, in the linguistic evidence. Uh, but still it seems like hints of it are there. But I think people typically associate the, the, the kind of full development of Lapida to about 3,200 years ago. And can you tell about borrowing and interacting with yes. existing populations? Yes. So... Um, the, one of the things that does is when you have contact between uh, different languages is it can accelerate the rates of change, accelerate the rates of lexical replacement. And you see big variation in, in the rates of change in, in some Austronesian languages. And also weird sound changes, sound changes that you don't see anywhere else. So interestingly, we see evidence in New Caledonia and in southern Vanuatu for what looks like uh, contact with lots of non-Austronesian speakers. And that's a bit of a puzzle because... There wasn't those... anybody. Yes. So one of the ideas that uh, some linguists such as Bob Blust have had is that maybe there was a second or third wave of non-Austronesian speakers who co-opted oceanic voyaging technology and used that to get uh, away from the malaria-infested islands and into the islands of, uh, kind of remote Oceania. 
There's a lot of talk about going back and forth too. So they yes, could have yes, been part constant. of that. Yes, that yes. The first people come yes. back and tell everybody about these great islands. The more we learn, the more we learn about how much ongoing kind of contact there was. And I think the uh, what's less clear is how, over what time scale that continues. But um, People in Europe think of you know water as like a moat, as a divide, whereas I think the lessons coming from the Pacific is like it's a highway. Uh, that really these vast distances weren't you know particularly huge kind of obstacles, given the voyaging technology that Polynesians and their ancestors had. One of the many mysteries surrounding the Lapita is why they eventually abandoned the rituals and practices they had so treasured. Well, in some respects, Lapita never ended, because if you take the view that, for example, people here in Vanuatu or people in Tonga Samoa are the direct descendants of Lapita people, then then they're still here. To say that Lapita ended, we have to go back just to the archaeological view and realize that for an archaeologist, the term Lapita is defined by a particular kind of decorative style on pottery. So when we say it ends, that's just an arbitrary cutoff, that the people didn't go away, they didn't die off, there was continuity in pottery making, and they just turned to different styles in some cases. So it's kind of a misnomer to say that Lapita ends suddenly. It, it transitions, it transforms, but it has continuity in, in descendant traditions. There's an argument about why didn't they keep going across the Pacific, but once you move out beyond Samoa, Tonga, Fiji area... The area of sea compared to the area of land increases massively. So basically it stops at the kind of area that is probably at the sort of threshold of, of relatively easy travel backwards and forwards. There are later um, developments in canoe technology in Polynesia, but remember that the rest, you know, we say it peters out, but the rest of, the, the, of Polynesia, eastern, central and eastern Polynesia, was not reached for almost 2,000 years after Lapita was over. And that was Matthew Spricks, an archaeologist at the Australian National University and the Cultural Centre in Vanuatu. You also heard from his colleagues Stuart Bedford and Richard Singh, as well as Patrick Kirch from the University of California in Berkeley, Frédéric Valentin from the National Centre for Scientific Research in Paris, Anna Gosling from the University of Otago, Ethan Cochrane from the University of Auckland and Russell Gray from the Max Planck Institute in Jena. And you can find out a lot more about the Lapita on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can find more stories on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.